With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Podcast on the Brink, your weekly dose of Indiana basketball news and discussion. Brought to you by the Assembly Call and Inside the Hall. I'm your host, Jared Morris. Join me live at AssemblyCall.com every Thursday night and immediately following every IU game for our live IU postgame show. And visit InsideTheHall.com for complete coverage of IU basketball and to join the discussion in the Inside the Hall Premium Forum. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of Podcast on the Brink. Unfortunately, Jared is not going to be with us uh, this week. He had some uh, things going on. And so I'm going to be joined this week by a special guest, uh, one of my good friends and somebody I think I've known as long as anybody on the IU beat. We go back to his time as a grad student at IU. Zach Osterman of the Indianapolis Star. Welcome back to the show, Zach. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm trying to hit uh, mute on this microphone so you don't get the background noise in my cavernous office playroom here. But uh, it's good to be back. So a lot obviously has changed since we last saw IU basketball in March and we're living in a very uncertain world. I think not just from a sports perspective, but life in general has changed for everybody. I can't think of one person whose life hasn't been impacted in some way by uh, this pandemic that we're all trying to, to face every day from an, you know, this is a show about IU basketball, obviously, but from a, a sports perspective in general, I want to talk a little bit about college sports uh, because this week the Big Ten announced that all team activities are going to be suspended uh, through June 1st. Uh, not a surprise, I don't think, to, to many people, but w- what do you think are the next steps? And, and I know it's, I want to preface everything that Zach and I say on this show um, with the fact that we're obviously not medical professionals. We, we, we're just two guys giving our opinions and, you know, we get asked a lot about, you know, is there going to be a season next year? We don't, we don't know, but we're doing our best to try to figure out kind of what, what's next. And I think, uh, you know, at this t- point in time, it's really all we can do, but um, I, I just want to preference that our conversation with that. But Zach, I'm just curious from your perspective, you know, you cover IU football as well as basketball, and so football is kind of the next big thing on the horizon. From a Big Ten and college sports perspective, what do you think are the next steps here that, that are going to have to be uh, – the, the questions that are going to have to be answered next as we kind of figure out what's, what's going to happen here in the coming month, weeks and months? 
Well, I think it's it's been made pretty clear at this point that the commissioners and, you know, to some extent, the presidents, the chancellors, the provosts, you know, those positions can kind of vary across universities. But those people, I think, have been pretty uniform in the idea that unless they can bring students back, if the, if the campus itself cannot be open to you know, the general student population, faculty and staff. So to give Indiana as an example, the only people bar emergencies um, that are allowed in Indiana university buildings right now that I'm aware of. Um, and, and my wife works at IU. She's been working from home since all this started. So almost two months now, the only people allowed in are building maintenance. Um, you know, the people who would need to be in there to fix some kind of plumbing problem, keep things clean, whatever. Um, everyone else is, is working from home. Um, Indiana, and I use Indiana as the example because it's what I know, it's what I'm closest to. Indiana has been working on figuring out its way forward, probably. Uh, here's where I, I need to kind of be careful between what's, what's sourced and what's me trying to um, connect dots. I think that if you want to talk in terms of hard dates, I have a suspicion um, that unless we see another real explosion of cases, which is you know always possible based on what the experts are saying, I have a suspicion that you will see a number of colleges and universities, including Indiana, uh, begin to try and loosen things up next month. So we're talking on May 6th. Um, I think that, you know, that could be sometime in June. Um, that would still probably be limited largely to essential personnel. We've discussed things like maybe she'd work from home part of the week and come in part of the week. There would still be, you know, really sort of strict measures on social distancing. Everyone would be, I don't know if they would be required, but certainly strongly encouraged to wear a mask. Um, there would be a great emphasis placed on sanitation, you know, especially at places where you might enter the building, uh, reminders to put on a mask, stations to wash your hands, those kinds of things. But trying to see if they can't kind of crack the window open a little bit. And the, the, the analogy that I've, the best one I've come up with when people have asked is, that it's, it feels like all of this from a sports perspective, from a society perspective, whatever is going to feel a little bit like learning to drive a, a manual transmission. Like the first few times we do it, we're, it's going to stall. We're going to like, we're going to screw and the engine's going to stall. And then we'll get a little better at it and a little better at it and a little better at it. And by the end of the lesson, maybe we're not driving like naturals, but it's running smoothly or at least smoothly enough that the car is moving forward. And I think that you're going to have to see that process unfold before you can think in a serious way about college sports, because um, I don't, that's not to say that part of the university trying to, or part of the university's trying to open that window or crack that window open is maybe them starting to think about ways in which they can get some of that back, ways in which they can get, you know, some, maybe some athletes back on campus, maybe some activities up and going again, though, you know, that's going to be up to the conferences, the NCAA too. But until you see something resembling normal returning to college campuses, you can't really think in terms of 
you know, when are we going to see college sports? I think it's been, I think that that's the thing that has been made very clear. Now, you know, the, the, the flip side um, to that is again, I think what will happen is it'll come in waves where we'll try these things. They won't work at first. There will be setbacks and we'll figure out how to deal with those setbacks and tweak things and figure things out. And then it will run more smoothly. And then there will be sort of this template that everyone can follow and sort of overlay onto their situation to say, well, this works for us, but this doesn't, and this works for us, but this doesn't. So I don't think it's necessarily something where it's just like, you know, we're going to go back to zero every single time something goes wrong. But I do think that you're going to need to see, you know, life maybe under, let's call it a new normal sort of resume on the college campuses before you can think very seriously about when can the athletes come back? Certainly when can competition begin? And what does that look like from a competitive standpoint, from a travel standpoint, from a fan standpoint, everything? You know, the thing that's, that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and, and I don't know that there's even a way to predict uh, on this or uh, kind of look into the crystal ball and figure out how this might be handled. But as we, as we read the news every day and we, we know that obviously you live in Indiana, I live in Kentucky, two states that are bordering each other, but two states obviously doing a lot of things differently in terms of reopening and there's no uniform policy obviously right now around the country as to, you know, states doing, you know, they're on different timelines. And so I'm curious from your perspective and, and kind of, you know, you talk to a lot of people and uh, the athletic department, I'm sure. And, and um, how do you think it's going to be managed in terms of a NCAA perspective? If you have, you know, certain States, for example, it sounds like we've had a lot of SEC athletic directors, presidents talking, you know, about obviously they want to play their seasons or football seasons this year. Uh, other states are, are being more cautious. Um, who ultimately do you think is going to make the decision on whether or not college football starts on time? You know, let's say there's 25 states that end up with students back on campus and then you have let's say a certain segment that's maybe some online, some on campus, and then you have some learning remotely. To me, that kind of seems like a scenario where it would be helpful to have a commissioner commissioner of college sports or somebody that was kind of overseeing uh, to make these decisions because it kind of seems like, uh, you know, we're obviously in uncharted territory, but if you have different states on different timelines and you have, say, SEC schools wanting to play football and, and maybe some other conferences aren't ready how do you think that's going to be managed and figured out? Do you have any insight or thoughts on, on how that could work? Yeah, I think um, not to get too sort of philosophical, but uh, I think one of the things that this has probably begun to expose, and it's not like we didn't know it was already there, um, but I think certainly one of the things that maybe – is going to really become pronounced as we do try to move college sports. Because, you know, the thing is, relatively speaking, this is easy for the pro sports, right? Like you have like all of the stakeholders basically live under the same umbrella and the players have their union 
and, you know, the owners have their committees and their meetings and, and, you know, things like that. But ultimately, it's not hard to get all those people to come together in, in one metaphorical table and discuss what it would take to get baseball going again, to get soccer going again, to get football up and running the NFL in the fall. Um, you know, college has so many different stakeholders because, for example, the Big Ten presidents, you know, you talk about, you use a great example there with the SEC. We are seeing, and I'm not trying to be political, um, but you're seeing a very different sort of public policy tack on all this being taken in a lot of southern states than you are in a lot of Midwestern states, than you are in a lot of northeastern states on the West Coast. And so, you know, the, the, the conference commissioners are going to think certain things. They're going to probably take a lot of their cues from their presidents. Um, you know, you're going to have the, the NCAA has tried very hard, I think, and commendably, I would say, and, and I'm not someone who is, is always quick to praise the NCAA, but I think they've tried very hard to position a number of experts um, at the forefront of this discussion in terms of the committee that they've built and, and the people they've put on it. I think former surgeons general, you know, people like that. Um, but it all comes back to this, this issue that I think college sports has had for a long time, which is basically who's in charge because, you know, the, the, I mean, Mark Emmert runs the NCAA. And I think that the, the sort of lay sports fan would say, well, the NCAA runs college sports. But if you're involved in it enough, you know that really the NCAA doesn't, I mean, in theory, the NCAA only exists at the will of its members. In practice, those members, both in word and in action, really probably more often than in action than in word, will dictate NCAA policy. Um, and broadly speaking, you have seen groups form within that that I think, you know, People love to sort of wring their hands at inequality in college athletics, financial inequality, competitive inequality. I'm going to be honest. I, I've, I've never, I think that's always existed. Now, is it more pronounced now? Possibly. But I think it's also just, it's also just an easy thing to talk about. And, and it's, it's one of those things that it's very easy for people to feel like the problem is worse in their time than it was in a time they didn't know in the same way that, you know, I think there is just a human, again, I'm not trying to get too philosophical, but there's a human tendency to see what's going on around you in the moment is the worst thing that's ever happened. Um, because it is the only frame of reference you have. History books don't feel so tangible to you as having to walk through your grocery store wearing a protective mask, not being able, as is the case with, with my mother who lives in an assisted living facility here in Bloomington. I can't go see her right now. Um, you know, is this the worst thing that's ever happened to the world? Probably not. But this is the frame of reference that I have. And I think that when you talk about inequality in college sports, I think the truth is that actually we, we probably have, it's, it's not perfectly functional. Of course, it has dysfunctional elements, but we have at least gotten to this place in the last maybe 10 years where it seems like we have built a, a hierarchy that does more good than bad, works better good than bad for most people, the power of five conferences, the group of five conferences, you know, the way you stratify certain things in college basketball, and then obviously how all of that filters down to your non-revenue sports. What I think that this is, is has the potential to really kind of expose is some of the real flaws in that. And I think that you, you come back to 
and I've made this comparison in things I've written before, um, but you think about what baseball wanted after the Black Sox scandal in 1918. Baseball wanted to clean up its image. Baseball wanted to feel like, you know, people could trust it. And so essentially baseball put a dictator in, in charge of the league. They put Kennesaw Mountain Landis in the commissioner's office and they gave him, you know, unprecedented power. We can have a long debate about whether or not baseball was better off for it, but the point is that's what baseball wanted. I think that to your point about a commissioner of college sports, I think that I would not be surprised at all if there's a point at which there is kind of an outcry for that, for there to be one, you know, sort of unifying figure at the center of all of this decision-making, who is the person in charge, you know, is, is, is the person sitting at the head of that metaphorical table. I just don't know who that's going to be. And I think that we've, we've been in moments in the past with you know, rules issues, television rights, realignment, certainly, where college sports might have been better off for having somebody who was essentially kind of the, the czar of college athletics in this country. And we didn't, but ultimately those were competitive concerns um, in many respects, some of them educational, you know, the, the, this is obviously much more grave. And so you just sort of wonder at the end who dictates what the final decision is. Um, I think that that's, that's going to be maybe the most difficult thing for me in terms of beyond the obvious of managing this disease and, and, you know, sort of controlling its spread as much as we can as we move forward for college athletics, it's going to be basically who is in charge of deciding of the final decision, because there are so many different stakeholders involved that aren't really always answerable to one another that the NFL players association and the owners are answerable to answerable to each other. Because if the players association doesn't agree to play or the owners don't agree to pay, then there's no NFL. Um, you know, college sports is a little more disparate. And I think that it, therefore, I think that's a good point because I think it could, we could wind up in a situation where you almost do wish there was just someone with almost a level of dictatorial power in college athletics that could just in the end, let all of the debate happen and then say, I know we disagree on these certain things, but this is the, this, in my view, is the best decision, and this is how we're going to move forward. One last thing on this. It's not exactly the same topic, but you've been writing a lot about football recently because there's obviously been a lot of availability and talking to different players and coaches. What sense in general have you gotten from the football program about what their expectations are moving forward in terms of how much time, you know, they obviously missed a lot of valuable time in the spring. Uh, what what sense from the coaches and from the players are you getting um, that, that how much time they will need to get ready if there is a season and, and kind of what, what thing, what, what, how has it changed, I guess, the day-to-day for the football program? Uh, you know, basketball, um, being off campus, it's a, it's a much smaller set of people. Um, and it's, I assume, a little bit easier to manage the communication when you're talking about 15 players for football. It's a lot more players. Obviously, there's more coaches, but I would assume it's uh, in, in football, there's a lot uh, more focus, obviously, on strength and conditioning this time of year. What, what kind of uh, feedback have you gotten from the coaches and players on, on kind of how this has changed things for them and, and what kind of timeline would they need to, to be ready to, to play if, if, if it's going to happen? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, um, first of all, I, I will say that, and I think this is probably department-wide, I think Indiana University, as an athletics department, has made a real effort to not have a Mike Gundy moment, um, to not have a moment where anybody kind of did anything other than parrot some very, you know, straightforward, um, I don't want to say boring, but, you know, kind of by the book answers to questions about, well, when do you think this can come back? And when do you think this should come back? And so on and so forth. And, and I'll also say too, Tom Allen did, I think about a 45 minute Zoom call with reporters a couple of weeks ago, but I was on furlough. So I was not able to uh, participate in that call one way or the other. Um, you know, Allen has, I think, at least tacitly endorsed the idea if they could get some, I think his idea was basically sometime in June if they can get their players back together sometime in June, even though they've lost a lot of spring practice, they've obviously lost all that strength and conditioning time you talked about. Then that will be, that would be enough time to start the season on time. Now, of course, there's also the possibility the season doesn't start on time. Um, I think ultimately, you know, I've talked to coaches and not just at IU, but in general in football, I've talked to coaches in non-revenue sports, even the non-revenue sports coaches will say, you know, something to the effect of they can do with my sport, whatever they need to just as long as we have a season, we can play it at a season. We can play it at a different time of year. I don't care. Football is the one we can't lose because football is such a revenue driver that it would impact deeply everything else in the department. Um, I, I think that, you know, really, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of different theories basically on, on the difficulties football is facing right now in, in just in terms of the day to day and what it, who could benefit and who could lose if and when programs are allowed to come back together. So for example, right now, football's not really losing much because this is, this would be the time of year that players would be given off. They could stay and work out if they wanted, but that's completely voluntary. A lot of them go home. Um, you know, Saturday is Saturday would have been, and I guess still will be, but only in a, only virtually I use commencement spring practice would have ended, et cetera. I think the difficulty for football was back, more back in March and April when, you know, Indiana had just hired a new strength and conditioning coach. Um, he was in the process of putting his staff together. That would have been an opportunity for him to really dig into his roster. And instead, basically what he was doing is trying to figure out how to write body weight and dumbbell workouts for each one of his players individually based on what kind of facilities they had access to. So, you know, it gets into kind of this idea of you don't know what shape, what kind of shape your, um, your team is going to come back in, you know, you could still be having position meetings uh, through spring practice. You know, obviously all of that was being done virtually coaches could not monitor any sort of workouts still can't strength coaches can't even really monitor workouts. They can just look at results. And so, you know, what you're really going to have is almost kind of this crash course. And I think, I think what could happen ultimately if the season is able to start remotely on time is effectively you basically get, two schools of thought for coaches, coaches that do everything to prepare their players' bodies and just think we're going to have to dumb down the playbook. We're going to have to water certain things down, but we're not going to break down physically and put coaches who prepare players' minds and almost say, I'll win the tactical battle. And maybe we won't be maximizing our strength and our speed the way we normally would have, but, but we'll, we'll mitigate that with the tactical battle. I could see that with college basketball too, frankly. Um, but I think in terms of what football will need, I think that the, the uniform, I don't want to say uniform, but probably the most common response you get when people have asked that question of coaches 
in the last couple of months is at least six to eight weeks. And I think coaches, Tom Allen tacitly endorsed this idea of basically NFL style offseason training activities. So when you get guys back, coaches can work with their players, you know, in essence, almost a slowed down spring practice in the summer that leads into preseason practice rather than, you know, what, what you and I both know the way most sports work, which is, you know, in the summer you can work out with your strength conditioning staff and you might get a little bit of instruction time with your coaches, but most of it, the coaches have to stay away from. The idea would be that because of everything that's been lost and because you're kind of having to to crash course your roster back together um, from a, a game fitness and preparedness standpoint, that the coaches would just be able to work with the players for an extended period of time in June or July. And I do think, I do think that there's going to be an appetite for trying to see if that's possible next month. And so that's, I, I really, um, you know, consider that, I guess, informed speculation, but I do think that's really possible. And then, and then you get into kind of the winners and losers, like a team like IU returns a lot of production. So maybe it's easier for a team like Indiana. Maybe you've got better habits and, you know, because you're returning so many guys who've played so many snaps young it's been second nature to them to go home and keep working hard and at least come back in some level of, you know, good physical shape. And they've already got all the experience and the reps and the playbook knowledge and all that stuff. Um, But I, I I think it's still, even if let's say that these coaches could get their, their players back, let's just say June 15th, I think there would still be a lot of kind of damned if you do damned, if you don't decisions they'd have to make about getting ready for the season. Um, And then of course, all of that, would be affected by any sort of setbacks or whatever might happen. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. From a basketball perspective, I've had, I had I, I let some people know on the on our forum that we were recording today, and so I got some questions. Um, I don't know. I, there's some good ideas in here. I'm not going to take them verbatim, but I'll, I'll maybe touch on a couple of them. But... I think the more, um, you know, obviously from a basketball perspective, I think the the most intriguing offseason storyline to me is whether or not Christian Lander is able to successfully reclassify uh, and come to campus next year. What what are you, um, as the offseason kind of moves along here, what are, in your mind, some of the more intriguing storylines to watch as the summer goes along for IU basketball? I mean, the, the Lander win is obviously big, um, and, and I wouldn't have cautioned since the day he committed against looking at Christian Lander like some sort of savior. Um, I'm, not sure I'd, I'm not sure I'd even be completely prepared to look at him the way that I think we looked at Yogi Ferrell in 2012, which, you know, was basically just, you know, the, the starting lineup has a Yogi Ferrell-sized hole in it, and when he enrolls as a freshman, he'll assume that role and we'll just all go forward. But adding... A, a high ceiling talented point guard to a roster that I think could use another kind of dominant ball handler in addition to Rob Fennessy. Um, an in-state kid who's played with some of these guys before, who's familiar with a lot of their games, who's been to you know a lot of IU games, presumably played in some open gyms and that sort of thing. 
of course that changes the calculus for Indiana. Um, you know, I think, I think the other kind of off season storylines for me, and, you know, these are storylines that maybe we don't get a great kind of look at in real time because we don't spend a lot of time around the theme in the summer. And obviously right now the team's not even around itself, so to speak, but, um, how does Trace Jackson Davis grow? You know, because I think that there is very much the potential there for him to take a leap and be maybe the dominant big man in the Big Ten, certainly one of them. And, and that's, I mean, I guess part of that is how you want to see Luca Garza, but I see Garza as more of a, I don't want to say a small ball four because he's 6'9, 6'10, but, you know, Trace Jackson Davis and Luca Garza don't play the same position. I think everyone can broadly speaking understand that. Um, when it comes to true, you know, down low, dominate the paint bigs. I think Trace Jackson Davis could be as good as anyone the Big Ten has next year. It just depends on the progress he's able to make. I would look at a couple of players that I think, you know, I don't maybe maybe at least one of them starts, maybe neither of them start next year. But Race Thompson and Jerome Hunter, I think, you know, when you saw the impact both of those guys could make when they were playing well last year, you think about Jerome Hunter against Ohio State and Maryland, you think about Race Thompson the last month, month and a half of the season. If those guys can both take tangible steps forward, and I'm not talking huge leaps, I'm just talking more consistent, a little stronger, a little bit better defensively, maybe a little bit more consistent at the offensive end and whatever it is they want to try and do, then I think that boosts Indiana significantly because then you start to really get into a conversation about how deep and versatile Indiana can be and how they can attack you all sorts of different ways and they can, you know, they can throw different weird coverages at you and, and on and on. I think, for example, about the way that Indiana defends Lamar Stevens at home in the Penn State win back in, in February. Um, and then, the, the, you know, the last one is just Justin Smith. And, and I, I know that Justin Smith is a player that divides opinion for people sometimes, but he was a double-figure scorer last year. He was Indiana's joint second-leading rebounder. He's been an almost ever-present figure in the starting lineup each of the last two seasons. And, um, you know, you don't really – it's not likely in my mind that you fill that hole if for some reason he decides to stay in the draft. Um, now I think there's a, a wide, ex, you know, kind of a broad-based expectation at this point that this is a test the water, get some NBA feedback, and come back for my senior year decision. But, of course, you know, as long as that, that uh, sort of loose end isn't tied up, that's probably one more for me. So I think those are the those are the three or four big ones. And then, of course, you know, Robert Finnessy, how does he keep growing? I think we can all see how important he is to Indiana as a point guard. Um, but those are probably the big ones for me this offseason. Question that was submitted. I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this because the more I thought about it and looked at kind of the depth chart for next year, there's – a lot of guys who you look at and say, well, this guy could definitely play a role, but you know, there's, there's two or three guys also at the position that uh, are going to have something to say about, about it. And you know, the, this, the, how do you think uh, Indiana is going to be able to spread the minutes around to keep everyone happy next season, especially if, if Lander comes in, because it kind of looks like, you know, they could go 10 or 11 deep and realistically speaking, it's always nice to talk about that in the preseason but then when you get in the meat of the big 10 you're not playing 10 or 11 you're playing seven eight maybe nine when it comes down to it i mean do you it's that was uh to me that's that's one of the interesting things looking at this roster for next season is just the sheer amount of guys who you look at and say this person could play a role how do, how do you think that all balances out 
Well, I think I think there's a couple of things. I mean, I'm I'm fascinated by the point guard dynamic. If Christian Lander can reclassify, because I don't think you know Rob Finnessy is just going to sort of fade to the background on that. Um, but you also can't deny Lander's talent potential. I do think we could see more three guard lineups, or maybe kind of true two guard one wing lineups than we saw a season ago. Um, you know, if I mean you look at the way that last season ended, you could imagine maybe Ray Thompson still eating up a few more of Joey Brunk's minutes. And certainly between the two of them, you know, it's worth pointing out down low, Trace Jackson Davis is already playing a ton of minutes and you're losing to Ron Davis without bringing in another true big. So, you know, the four guys that play those four and five Brunk, Jackson Davis, Thompson, Justin Smith. I mean, you know, those four, I think there's going to be tons of minutes to go around there. At this point, and of course, I mean, we're talking on May 6th, things can always change. At this point, I, I don't know that I expect Indiana to fill that 13th scholarship. So that, you know, kind of frees, that loosens certain things up as well. And then I think that this is the other kind of key to recruiting players that that understand that they're four-year guys. Um, and that can sound simplistic, but I mean, I remember having a conversation with Anthony Leal. I did a long sit down interview with him near the end of the regular season. And he said, you know, when I came in as a freshman at South, they needed me to knock down shots. They needed me to be a shot maker. And as I got older, um, you know, my role changed and I needed to understand how my role changed and they needed me to score more. They needed me to take on bigger defensive assignments, whatever. And he said, um, he said, and I already know that looking at Indiana, what's going to be my, you know, I need to understand my role next year and embrace it. It's going to be, can I come in and, and offer something on defense and knock down threes? And the point is, I think that sometimes when you recruit kids that understand that, that you know, if they don't play 19 minutes a night as a freshman, that doesn't mean that they're not going to have the career that they want over the course of four or even five years. You know, it's worth pointing out Archie Miller wasn't afraid to register a guy at, at Dayton. He did it more than once. Um, then I think that's when you, you get into a situation where you can say, Hey, we can go nine, 10 deep most nights. But as you point out on the nights where the bench does tighten up, the guys down at the end, aren't thinking, well, hold on, you know, where are my minutes? Why am I not getting a look at this? Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, if you ask me, for example, for a starting lineup right now, and it's difficult, but you know, I, I, Shooting from the hip, I'd say something like Rob Finnessy, Al Durham, Trace Jackson Davis, all locked in. And then I think you can make an argument for, let's say, let's say Landers on the team. Um, Christian Landers starting. Certainly an argument, of course, for Justin Smith starting, Race Thompson starting, Joey Brunk starting. So maybe it's also not a year where Archie Miller is completely wedded to his starting lineup. I don't know. Um and it's 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 going to be difficult in some respects, but I also think too, um, you know, if if you want to be a high major coach, you need to know how to handle this because you know a high major program like Indiana can't only have seven good players. Um, you know, a high major program can't be in a position where it's only got eleven scholarship guys every single year and only trusts playing six of them. And I'm not saying that, that I'm not, like that's not a direct criticism of Archie Miller. My point is more saying he has shown that he knows how to recruit the guys that fill a lot of the holes that he has on his roster. The next step is is being able to keep – you're never going to keep everybody happy. You're going to lose guys to transfer. That happens. 
but being able to keep everyone happy enough that you're only losing the guys like Demacy Anderson, who looks at it and says, you know what? I just don't think there's going to be minutes for me here going forward. I haven't been able to carve out the role that I want. There's no hard feelings. I just want a different challenge. I want a place where I can play more. Um, so part of it also just does come down to, you know, can you coach guys, not just in terms of X's and O's and skill development, but in terms of getting them to buy into what you're trying to do um, and and getting them to recognize that just because maybe they don't play a lot as a freshman or even as a sophomore doesn't mean that, like I said, they aren't going to get to have the career they want by the time they're, they're done. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, I think if we presume Christian Lander reclassifies in Indiana, doesn't to Maisie Anderson scholarship, then you have 12 guys next, next year, including four freshmen. Um, you, you at least get the sense that a lot of those freshmen understand, for example, that they'll have to come in and work very hard to play. Um, and if that's the case, then you could have just kind of a situation where those guys look at it and say, okay, maybe I won't play a ton this year, but then next year, Justin Smith and Al Durham, two, three-year starters will graduate. And then the year after that, you'll lose another couple and on and on. Um, it's not perfect. And I suppose any coach would tell you they'd rather have the options and not have the options. But I think it also just comes down to, you know, are you a skilled enough coach at connecting with your kids and getting them to buy in that, you know, you're not at risk of somebody just turning really sour if, the rotation shrinks shrinks from ten to eight in February and March, and they're not in it. From a schedule perspective, I think um, next year could be as challenging as as we've seen in a while uh, in the non conference. At least there's a potential, obviously, for the Gavit tip off games to be played. And again, again, this is all assuming that you know we play next season. IU plays next season as expected, but that's what we're we're operating on, on under that assumption for this conversation. Um, but yeah, the Gavit games could happen again for IU. They didn't play last year. They've, they've obviously got Maui on the uh, on the docket. Uh, there's a uh, the likelihood that they're going to play the Big Ten ACC Challenge game on the road, uh, Crossroads Classic against Butler, uh, two non-conference games that we already know about at home as well, uh, the fall under kind of guarantee game. Um the guarantee game header uh, with Robert Morris and Nebraska Omaha. Do you think this team is going to be ready to play this difficult of a schedule? It seems pretty, um, I mean, they're, I, I named at least six high majors, uh, assuming they're in Gavit, which I would, I think, which I, I think, be. I think they will host a Gavit game this year. Okay. I'm, so that's I'm fairly that, confident in that. That's six, that's six uh, high major games in the non-conference, which probably um, I've been asked about, you know, the potential for Kentucky or Arizona. And I'm thinking uh, with what they've already got on this, on the kind of on the docket, I would, I would say this is pretty much probably it for the high majors. Would you agree with that? And do you, do you kind of see uh, this team being ready to navigate a a slate like that in the non-conference? Yeah. I mean, I think so. Um, I mean, I, I think, I think the one thing you get when you're when you're Indiana and you, whatever whatever you add as a freshman, if they take a grad transfer to fill a spot, whatever, you've got a hierarchy built in there. So if you imagine, you know, a college basketball season is sort of a, a lump of clay in October that a coach is trying to sort of slowly shape in November and December and really kind of add fine detail to in January and February, so that when you hit March. You, you know, you've got the 
the whole thing there ready to go. Um, I think the one thing that not always, but tends to set teams apart that can have success in November and December is the ability to have a, have confidence in basic stuff that works so that whenever, um, you know, if, if ever you wind up in a situation where, you know, you, your game plan is just not working and the coach hasn't gone deep enough into the playbook for guys to understand how to adjust and how to layer on. There's some basic things you can pivot back to. And I think that, that Indiana is going to have a lot of those things, you know, they're going to, re- I mean, effectively, and I'm not trying to slight Deron Davis, but effectively, you know, they've only lost one significant statistical contributor from last year. Um, and I guess maybe a better way to say that is not so much that they've only lost one. It's that they only have one, significant contributor from last year for whom they do not have ready-made replacements. You know, when you look at, at what Indiana asked Ron Davis to do, it should have the personnel to change a lot of, you know, to, to fill Deron Davis's minutes. Maybe they play a little bit of a different way. Maybe it's a little bit of a different style, but you get the point I'm trying to make. I think you've got size, which Archie Miller always needs. You're going to have steady point guard play and more than that veteran guard play in general, because you've got a junior and a senior headlining your backcourt and you're going to have Trace Jackson Davis. And so as much as, I mean, yes, that's a difficult slate, at least on paper. And, and of course, I mean, listen, we can have a separate conversation about whether events like the Maui Invitational are in some sort of peril ahead of next season or not. Um, but I think that there are already some some really sort of foundational, you know, kind of aspects of next year's team that are going to be in place such that if you run into a difficult night, a difficult opponent, um, you don't need to necessarily be able to go to, you know, chapter 14 of the playbook to figure out how to out scheme because you're going to be able to lean on some, some just some fundamental strengths, your high, low game, your point guard game, the veterans you have, the depth you have, um, you know, the, the, the broad idea that I think it's fair to say this program looks pretty well bought into Archie Miller's defensive philosophy at this point. Offense needs to see, keep coming on, but defensively Indiana is very good and, and probably still going to get better. And so my point is, I think, I mean, it's it's absolutely a difficult non-conference schedule. You can even throw those two Big Ten games in there, presumably, as well, because those are typically played right after the Big Ten ACC Challenge. So you're going to wind up in a situation where you could go basically from Maui Invitational to Big Ten ACC Challenge to Big Ten game to Big Ten game to Crossroads Classic or something like that. But I also think that if, you know, you're going to have to navigate a stretch like that it's no bad thing at all that you've got a team that is as veteran as Indiana and is, is, you know, something that made a lot of sense to me in watching it play out this year was when Archie Miller would talk in November about how his team was young and he didn't necessarily mean in years so much as he meant in roles. And I sat down and kind of looked at the roster and it just occurred to me that the only guy at the beginning of this past season who was in theory, um, not stepping into a completely different role from any he'd ever really filled in college with Rob Fennessy. That's not going to be the case next year. You know, the, the, the roles um, that you are 
asking guys to fill, let's say, Finnezy Durham, Jackson Davis, Race Thompson, Justin Smith. Those are going to be roles that are probably maybe a little bit expanded, but probably pretty familiar to those guys. And so if you've at least got some of those fundamental sort of strengths, and, and maybe the better way to put it is confidence in those fundamental strengths already ingrained into your roster, I think you're okay. Because the other thing that's worth pointing out too is a lot of those teams, you know, I mean, North is in North Carolina, I think is in Maui with Indiana next year. Um, they're going to have to turn around and play a, a Big Ten ACC Challenge game. They're going to have two non-conference games in, in November and December. You know, they're going to have to get ready for the CBS Sports Classic and on and on and on. Um, you know, that's the other thing I'd say too is and not to just keep kind of turning this back to, hey, that's your that's life in, in the NFL, but – um, you know, you want to be successful at Indiana. You're not looking for free passes in November and December. You're looking for challenges that'll harden your team up for February and March. We'll get you out of here on this, Zach. But it, and this is a non-IU um, basketball or football question, but it was actually addressed to me in the forum. But I want to ask it to you because I'm just curious and give you a chance to maybe talk about some of the things you've written about. I know you had a big baseball story today and. You know, the one thing I, I will say is, um, is as someone that's has to um, that relies on on people reading stories and all that, and, and Zach's in the same position. Um, it's a challenging time, just in general, for everybody um, in in the world. But um, for for our professions, it's 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 been a different time too. So I'm curious. Uh, the question Mark asks is is an, in an odd kind of way. Do you find the current situation that we're that we're in for from a professional standpoint? Have you found that um, giving you n- new creative ways to try to come up with content and stories to write? I mean, has that how has that been for you? And and kind of what what are some of the things you've done? If you want to talk at all about that baseball story, because I think it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the one thing that it has done is it's taken us all out of the daily grind of, you know, I mean, the, the number of times I said, oh, I want to do this story or I want to do a series about this or whatever. And, you know, and then I only put maybe 70 percent of the time into it that I want to because I only have 70 percent of the time. I can't I can't give it as much time as I want. I've got to move on to something else. Um, I think we've been able to do that a little bit more. I mean, that you know, that baseball story and I can talk about it, the story itself a little bit, but it. You know, in one respect, I, I covered that team in 2008 and, and a significant portion of 2009. And I've stayed, you know, sort of like in touch with a number of those guys since. So it wasn't hard for me to find sources. But, you know, it also struck me like essentially what it is, is it's an oral history of the 2009 baseball season, which was the first Big Ten tournament. Tracy Smith won at IU. It was a team that had seven uh, seven guys eventually got drafted off its roster that year. I think 12 players on that roster in total would get drafted at some point in their careers. Obviously a couple wound up in the pros, Josh Fagley being maybe the most, um, you know, the most well-known of those. Um, but like when I started spreading around to just, you know, sending some texts and direct messages to some of those guys, one of them, Kip Schutz just uh, texted me and he said, Hey, all the guys are getting your texts and they just want to set up a zoom call. Do you want to do that? And it just kind of struck me too, this may sound simplistic and maybe I'm wrong, but I just kind of got the sense everybody was happy to talk about something that didn't have anything to do with coronavirus or how this is affecting, you know, schedules or seasons or anything like that. But, but you know, just simply saying, um, let's talk about a, a happy memory you've gotten. 
Um, and, and you know, that story specifically, that team was fascinating. It was a, um, <laughs> it was, it was a team with a lot of character. It was a team with a lot of, um, spunk. It was a team that was not afraid to be a little bit off color, um, which kind of comes through in the story. And, and my suspicion is that there's probably even more examples of that, that, that they will not, uh, they will not share with a reporter on the record, even 11 years later. Um, but it was a team that, you know, I guess what was fascinating about it was, and Tracy Smith talked about this a little bit when he and I chatted for that story, it was a team that had no concept of what winning was like. And it was a team there that, that had to win, learn how to win almost from nothing. You know, that they hadn't even made, the program hadn't even made the Big Ten tournament um, until 2008, Tracy Smith's third year. They hadn't even made the Big Ten tournament since 2003. So this was a this was a program with, and they'd only made one NCAA tournament ever in 1996. This was a program with next to no history, tradition, you know, built-in success, any of that. And and these guys effectively just kind of had to manufacture that themselves. And Tracy Smith was tough on them because Tracy had had that success, and he knew what it looked like, and he knew what it would take. Um, you know, he 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 drove them hard. And I think that maybe in some respects that almost kind of brought them closer together because they're an exceptionally close group. I think teams, you know, teams always tend to stay together when um, stuff like that, um, you know, when they achieve stuff like what that 09 team achieved. But I mean, that group, like I've been, I've run into them at a teammate's wedding or, you know, when, like when they've been, not that I've been at the wedding, but when they've been in town, for a wedding and and it's never just a half dozen of them. It's never, you know, four or five that were really tight and they're all each other's groups, but it's always 10, 12, 15 of them all together. Um, you know, they do an annual cabin weekend somewhere around Bloomington. I think sometime in the fall or maybe early winter and like they get a dozen guys or more to come back every single year, just that group. And, you know, it, it, it's a fascinating story to tell. I think uh, Jeremy Gray, who of course we both know works at, for the IU athletics department. And that season was the first season that IU put on the radio from a baseball perspective. And so it was also kind of the, uh, you know, maybe the right season in the way that, that, you know, serendipity is always a little bit of a part of success. It was the first time that maybe IU fans could get more unfettered access to games than normal um, without having to go to Simbauer field and, you know, here was this spunky, colorful team that hit a bunch of home runs and, and won enough games to win a Big Ten tournament. And that's the first, you know, it's the right year to be the first year in the radio. But Jeremy called those games and he, he said that, um, he said if 2013 and 2014, when Indiana went to the, you know, College World Series, new stadium, national seat, all that, 2013 and 2014 were the, um, the, uh, 13 or excuse me, the Joe Torre Yankees. Sorry, I lost my train of thought there for a second. Um, if 13 and 14 were the Joe Torre Yankees, then in 2009 was the Millie Martin Bronx Zoo Yankees in the 1970s when there was, you know, it, it could be a little bit anything goes, no holds barred. It's, it's incredibly off color at times, um, but it still led to winning and it still led to success. And it was still, you know, really fun baseball. And so, um, you do, I mean, listen, we, we try to tell those stories under more normal circumstances anyway. Um, but ultimately now I think we do have a little bit more time and, and we 
I mean, and I both know this would be our off season anyhow, but you know, now's the time. The other thing too is now's the time when, when everybody's got some free time. So it's maybe also not harder to get somebody on the phone because, you know, for them, it, I don't know how many interviews I, I can't speak for you, but I've done a number of interviews for different stories in the last month where basically someone's just been like, Hey, happy to be off of zoom and just be on the phone with a human and not staring into my computer for 20 minutes. Um, and so, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll get to keep doing this. Obviously also, hopefully, you know, we'll all be able to find a new normal here relatively soon. Um, but in the meantime, I think we have, um, I think we have, you know, the opportunity to try and zoom out a little bit, attack some of these stories that we probably wouldn't have made time for otherwise. And, and just give people, you know, I think people still want to read about sports. I think they, you know, and, and especially in the absence of live sports, they want to be able to reminisce and, and go back and, you know, here's the, uh, an opportunity for them to do it. Absolutely. Well said, Zach, it's, uh, I know we talk every day, so it's not like uh, we haven't caught up in a while, but good to good to get you back on the show and, and get your perspective. Uh, I really enjoyed your thoughts on just kind of the, you know, the, the, the most fascinating thing to me is this kind of as we go here is just figuring out how, um, because our, our jobs depend on college sports happening. Obviously, uh, if they're not going to happen for the foreseeable future, then both of us start to kind of wonder what, uh, what we're going to exact write about. Um, so uh, I think the, 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 the conversation just about on, on how all that could work uh, was fascinating. And I think it's, it's kind of the next big thing that we have to look forward to, at least in terms of figuring out what's next uh, for, for sports in general. So thanks for that. And, and, and thanks as always for uh, taking the time. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's always good to be back. Thank you for listening to this episode of Podcast on the Brink. We always appreciate you being here. Remember to join me and my co-hosts for more IU basketball talk at assemblycall.com and visit Alex over at insidethehall.com for complete coverage of Indiana basketball. If you want to support Podcast on the Brink, here is the single best way to do it. Tell anyone you know who loves IU hoops about us and suggest that they subscribe. Podcast on the Brink can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are available. Tell your social media followers, email your friends, text your family members. For weekly discussion about IU basketball, they need to be subscribed to Podcast on the Brink. We'll talk to you next time. Go Hoosiers.